Our second reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from us, for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The word of the Lord. Around the time of Jesus, many would-be messiahs started messianic movements in the Middle East. All of them were executed. Their followers ended up disbanding, and the movements ended. All of them except for the Jesus movement. It was different in some way. His followers, you see, claimed that his tomb was empty. They witnessed to having seen him, and they went spreading the message of the gospel, the good news that Jesus is the risen Messiah, the Savior and Lord of all creation. Many of those first followers of him died horrible deaths, unwilling to recant their belief that Jesus is the risen Savior. And yet the gospel continued to spread and spread and spread and spread to every corner of the globe. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the single most significant event in human history. This morning, my hope is not to try to prove that to you, to go through the historicity or the plausibility of the resurrection of Jesus. I can point you to a lot of good books that point in that direction. You could even listen to previous Easter sermons done here. What I want to do this morning is assume Jesus died on the cross and then rose on the third day from the dead, that he was resurrected on Easter, and to ask this question, so what? What difference does the resurrection make? What does Jesus' resurrection mean for us? Four things we're going to hit on today. It means peace, joy, hope, and love. That sounds politi politically correct and good for Easter, right? Peace, joy, hope, and love. Good ways to frame things this morning. Peace, first peace. Jesus' resurrection declares this. It is finished. The very thing he said from the cross was declared as final by the empty tomb. Nothing more needs to be done by any of us. The Bible teaches this. The Bible teaches that all of us are sinners. None of us is good enough. We all fall short of God's glory and deserve God's justice. But Jesus' death on the cross is our substitute. On the cross, God takes his justice and applies it to his son for our sin in our place. The question then is this. How do you deal with sin? How do you deal with your own weaknesses and failures? Some of us think there's no such thing as sin. 
Each person, person should be able to do or figure out for themselves what's right and wrong. And really, we just need moral improvement occasionally. We need to feel better about ourselves. Others of us know that we are sinners. We're very aware that we're failures at times, and we fall short. And many of us have wrestled with sin and guilt through much of our life. People who believe Jesus died for their sins still wrestle with ongoing guilt. Even after confessing our sins, we feel guilty because we feel like we owe it to Jesus to do better than keep sinning in that same area. And so what do we do? We beat ourselves up. We turn to penance. We try to be more religious. You know, as if we're going to make it up to God for our failures. But when we start down that road, we're never sure we've done enough, that we're sorry enough, that we've made up for it enough. The empty tomb declares this. It is finished. All that you've ever done, every secret thought or blatant crime, everything you have ever done has been paid for. If the tomb is empty, there's nothing more you need to do except admit your sin and put your trust in Jesus crucified and risen for you. I can remember wrestling with these very thoughts And as I've come to understand it is finished nature of the empty tomb, this is how my thought process goes. But what about my repeated habitual sins? Jesus, is is he really going to forgive me for that? And the declaration from the empty tomb is, it is finished. Nothing more needs to be done. But don't I need to go to church, read the Bible, be a better person? It is finished. Nothing more needs to be done. There's amazing freedom when you hear that and let that sink in. That the empty tomb confirms, affirms, declares, it is finished. There's freedom and there's peace. And this is the gospel of grace. The gospel of Jesus Christ, not religion. It's the certainty that all my sins, past, present, and future, things I haven't even done yet, were nailed to the cross and declared paid in full by the empty tomb. It's peace with God being offered for free to all who believe. Second is joy. Jesus' resurrection tells us that most of our joys in this life are actually too small. The Bible declares Jesus rose physically. And the risen Jesus is seen and touched and walks around and eats food with the disciples. And this is meant to be a picture of eternal life. The resurrection resurrection of Jesus to bodily life indicates that there's continuity between this life and the life that is to come. Like a tent is a good thing, but a mansion is far better. Or like a seed is not quite as delicious as eating the fruit itself. The best things of this life are only shadows, tents of the eternity that's to come. And you know what I've found? As I've understood this, it's increased my own joy in the things in life I love. What do you love? If you think back over your life over the past couple of years, what are some moments of joy that you've had? One of the best evenings I ever had was in Wednesday of Snowmageddon in 2010. That's right, on Easter, I'm going to talk about snow. Bear with me, I'm up here, you're not. And I love snow. (laughs) It was Wednesday of Snowmageddon, 
And all the friends and kids came out to sled on the hill in our neighborhood, on the street. And as it got darker, friend after friend went home. But two really close friends and two of our kids stayed. And we kept going down the hill again and again and again. On rudder sleds, we were banging into each other, wrestling, having the greatest time slamming into snow piles, laughing, taunting each other, winning, losing. It was glorious. But then it ended. And I've never been sledding before or since that was quite the same. But isn't that the way it is with most of the joys we have in life? They never seem to last long enough. We try so hard to hold on to them, to remember them, to return to them. You know, that's why we put so much pressure on success in life, on relationships, on vacations. We feel we have to get everything we possibly can from this life. And you know, if you believe that this life is all there is, then that's true. Your fleeting happiness is all there is. But if the resurrection is true, then moments of joy that we experience in this life actually point us to heaven. And as I've understood this more and more, I've, it's helped me to appreciate the joys of life even more. Because it means a dinner with family, laughter with friends, a perfect night of sledding is actually a glimpse of the resurrection life to come when joys will be unending. The joys in this life are thin places, as the Celtics used to talk about, where heaven and earth seem to meet. They are windows into the joy of the resurrection. We who believe that Jesus rose from the dead of all people, should actually enjoy life more because we believe in Jesus and because the best of this life is a foretaste of the lasting joy of eternity. You know, the best things in this life don't last, but one day, one day joy will be everlasting. First peace, second joy, third hope. Jesus' resurrection suggests this, that our sorrows are never too big. The resurrected Jesus had scars. He's risen to life, to the divine life, and he has holes in his hands and his feet and in his side. Think about that. He's risen to eternal life and he still has holes in his hands and his side from his crucifixion. There's an indication there that in some way our deepest pains and our greatest suffering will be redeemed and resurrected. This means it's possible to face sickness and loss and suffering with hope. Johnny Erickson Tata was paralyzed from the neck down in a diving accident when she was a teenager in the late 60s. In her book, Heaven, Your Real Home, written in the late 90s, she writes... I, with shriveled, bent fingers and atrophied muscles and gnarled knees and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a body, a new body. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone who is spinal cord injured like me? It's the hope of the redemption of all that we have experienced. 
In 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul is going through an incredibly hard and difficult time. He looks to the resurrection of Jesus and to the future of his own resurrection, and he's able to say this about his own suffering. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Light and momentary are the words he uses. Paul had been shipwrecked, falsely accused, imprisoned, beaten nearly to death, out starving, abandoned by all his friends. He'd nearly died numerous times when people threw stones at him trying to kill him. He calls it light and momentary. How do you do that? I think that he saw that even his weakness and suffering would be a source of greater joy and glory in the final resurrection. And you know, this fits Jesus' own words about his kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are persecuted. The kingdom of God in Jesus Christ is an upside-down sort of kingdom. It's not the good and religious, the smart and successful who get in. It's the humble. It's those who realize they're bankrupt and are willing to fall on the grace of God. The resurrection is the hope that whatever happens in this life and whatever has happened to us cannot compare with the glory and joy that is to come. My guess is if we went around into each person in this room, many of you have dealt with or are dealing with incredible pain, hurts and wounds from your past, disappointments and loss that are still very raw. Jesus' resurrection body is filled with scars. When he first rises from the dead, Jesus is not wearing a robe and a king's crown. He's wearing holes, emblems of his crucifixion. Jesus' greatest suffering is the source of his honor and glory. And in some way, it may be the same for you and me that our deepest sorrows are actually the seed of our greatest hope. Tim Keller, writing in The King's Cross, put it this way, you will find the worst things that have ever happened to you will, in the end, only enhance your eternal delight. The joy of your glory will be that much greater for every scar that you bear. Fourth and finally, love. Jesus' resurrection assures us that God loves us and wants a relationship with us. Jesus rose from the dead, it says in the Gospels, to be with his disciples. Go to Galilee. He wants to meet you there. Jesus wants to spend time with the disciples in part to restore his relationship with them because they have all abandoned him and denied him. And over the next couple of days after the resurrection, he walks around with them. He eats with them. He laughs with them. And he tells them, I will always be with you. This is the promise of God through the risen Jesus. That any of us can have a relationship with God. Through his son's death, our relationship with God is reconciled because we are forgiven. And 2,000 years later, we can still experience the living God and his love for us. You know, we all look for purpose and meaning and identity in this life. 
And very often we turn to things like family and friends, accomplishments and career, in order to give us purpose and meaning, to fill us. But the Bible says what the ancient philosophers also knew. None of the things we turn to in life can fill us enough. We will pursue them our whole life. And even if we happen to attain what we were looking for, what we'll find in the end is that it's not satisfying enough. It's not good enough. Getting to the, your career goals will not deeply satisfy you. You will find out the husband you always wanted is not perfect. It's not that career or kids aren't good things. It's that they aren't big enough. They don't have enough weight and glory to fill us. We are made to be filled by God. We are made to know the living God. We are made to experience the love that God offers us. Anything else we turn to may satisfy us for a time, but it cannot ultimately satisfy us. But a relationship with God can. Turning to anything else is, to steal from C.S. Lewis, turning to playing in mud puddles when a vacation by the beach is being offered. Jesus did not come to start a religion, to teach you how to become a moral or better person. Jesus came to reveal God, to reconcile us to God, and to offer us a relationship with our creator. Anything else we turn to is playing in mud puddles. Listen, God doesn't want you just to do good stuff. He wants you to know him, the source of all good. And because Jesus rose from the dead, you can know the God of the universe personally and forever. When this happens, when you start to understand God's love for you, it changes you. You experience peace and joy and hope and yes, the love of God that you and I are made for. Jesus' resurrection is the most significant event in history. God wants it to be the most significant event in your story too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, it is hard for us, many of us, to believe that you rose from the dead. But if you did, and I believe you did, open to us the life eternal, a relationship with the God who loves us and who made us and who wants to restore a relationship to him. Give us hope and peace and joy that can only be found in you. Amen. We're going to take a moment before we have a song of response to hear from a good friend of mine. Brian Berry is coming down the aisle here not just to get first in line for communion. <laughs> Brian shared with us a couple years ago when he was first diagnosed with cancer. And um, he's had some experiences of the living God, some experiences recently that I'd love for him to share. So I asked him if he would be willing to share with us this morning a little bit about what God has been doing and has done in his life. So about two and a half years ago, I stood up here um, to talk to you about how God had spoken to me at a healing prayer service that the Andringas had taken me to, um, which I had been um, 
a little bit nervous about going to it. The idea of healing prayer services is not something that generally accompanies my type of faith. I'm a rational, um, theological, I want to study something, I want to understand it. Experiential was not kind of part of my way of dealing with God. And at that healing prayer service, God told me in a very powerful way that I did not need to be fearful. At the time, it was the lowest point of my faith. I was fearful that I didn't have enough faith um, to get into heaven. And because I was all of a sudden facing death, or the possibility of death, I was thinking about that a lot. And God told me not to be afraid because it wasn't the quality or the quantity of my faith. It was who I put my faith in and that he would cover me. Um, and I wanted to kind of bring you up to date. At the time, I remember praying, and again, I don't think this came from me, not for healing, though I really would like that, um, but to get to know God more, that I wanted through this process to understand who God was, um, who God is, and how that relates to me. Um, so let me bring you up to date. In the two and a half years, I've had many surgeries, many uh, uh, setbacks, many steps forward, but the medical news isn't very good. Um, in his wisdom, God has chosen not to heal me, at least not yet, um, although I'm, again, very open to that idea. Um, but he has been really, really good to me over these past two and a half years. And he has answered that prayer of drawing me closer to him. Um, around January, the, the medical news started getting bad. I thought that in January I was going to go in for a very little surgery at NIH uh, on my lungs. And then I would be in a period of stasis where my slow-growing cancer would just kind of um, progress slowly for years. Um, people with my type of cancer oftentimes don't develop new metastases or new tumors for uh, five, ten years. Um, but I got a call from NIH that I had some brain tumors. And then I got a call from NIH that not only did I have brain tumors, but I had tumors in my arm and back in my hip and in other places in my body. Um, and then I had a seizure uh, one night because of the way that they were dealing with the brain tumors. And the medical news has just kind of piled and piled and piled, and it's just not been very good. And culminating two weeks ago, um, we went up to New York to visit some specialists who said, we don't know why your cancer is so rare, we don't know what's going on, um, but for some reason it's turned aggressive and it's spreading. So we're going to have to try some aggressive treatments. So I'm now doing like a full-on aggressive chemotherapy. Um, so that's where I am medically. And despite all the crappy, I'm sorry, medical news, um, God is still working on me. And he started to convict me of something very profound a couple of months ago in a dramatic but gentle way he showed me that I've always wanted to be God, that I've always wanted to use God, but that I've never really 
sought after God. Um, I had tried to replace God with me. And even in my prayers, that's the way that I would pray. I would pray, you know, you know, God, your will be done, but here may be some suggestions on how your will should be. Um, and what I'd realized is that for 25 years as a Christian, I had sought after knowing about God, but not really knowing God. And I think, to be honest, it scared me, the idea of trying to get to know God, because one, what if he wasn't there? What if it was a mirage? If it was just on paper, I could explain Christianity. Um, and two, I was concerned because what if God was different than I thought he was going to be? Um, even in the resurrection, Easter, I'd wanted God's forgiveness, but I didn't really want much more than that. I wanted the part that was useful to me. <clears throat> so we'd use words like being in a relationship with God and having the ability to know God, but truth be told, I was using God. Um, I wasn't searching for him. I wanted the comfort in knowing that I had eternal life or the promise of heaven or the forgiveness of sins, but I wasn't seeking out God. So he was showing me all this in the midst of this bad medical news. And I guess three or four Fridays ago, um, it just became absolutely overwhelming. Um, I'm on anti-brain swelling medication that makes me super hyper, the steroids, and it makes me very anxious. But I'm also on medication that makes me uh, very sleepy and can lead to anxiety. Um, and I just remember Holly was downstairs and just crying and realizing this could be the end. It could be pretty close. Um, and I'm anxious and I'm fearful and I don't know um, if I've ever really experienced this God who I say I believe in and that I hope is the promise of eternity. Um, and that morning, I had read this blog that maybe one of you posted on Facebook um, by a guy named Eric Metaxas. I'd never read the blog before in my life. And um, it was about how one particular person's death had affected him in ways that he couldn't really explain, like the NBC journalist David Bloom. Um, and to be honest with you, the blog was okay. It didn't affect me terribly, but it he kept on going back to this point that David's death and therefore everyone's death was okay and this is the phrase he used and it was from Oswald Chambers because of what the son of man went through on Good Friday every human being can now get through into the very presence of God and that's what Johnny preached on the week before and it's what I was craving this idea of, how, okay, how do we get into the very presence of God? Um, and I remember going to my room just being absolutely overwhelmed, fearful, confused, tired, medicated. Um, and I 
I just said, God, whatever walls I've put up, whatever I've done to stop this relationship from happening, please knock them down and reveal yourself to me. And immediately, I heard him say, oh, my son. And that's all he said, just, oh, my son. But I felt his presence in the room in ways that I, I can't begin to describe. And in those three words, there was empathy, there was love, there was conviction for me that the God of the universe had been walking with me through this whole thing, that he was hurting for me, that though I do not understand why there is still pain in the world, he was hurting for me, he was walking with me, he was loving me, and most importantly, that he considered me his son. And, um, and I want to share this with everyone because that's what's offered to us in the resurrection. That's when Johnny talks about why does it matter? It matters because the God of the universe allows us to be in his presence. And if we seek him, and we seek after him, we can be in his presence. And uh, it doesn't always look like uh, him showing up in your bedroom speaking audibly to you. Um, but what's been great is, is in the three or four weeks that have passed since then, he's shown up in so many other different ways, which convinces me that what happened was real, that he did show up. Um, a couple days after telling Johnny about this, a dear friend came and told me, hey, you know, on that Thursday night, I had been praying for you and was really, really anxious. So this is 12 hours before my experience of God. And I couldn't sleep. And what God told me was, don't pray that Brian gets well. Pray that Brian gets to know me in a different way. And for her to share that with me helped convince me, like, okay, this wasn't a drugged-out experience. This was God showing up. And he has shown me stuff in scriptures that I've never experienced before. I went to scriptures because I had to, because people said that you can find God in scripture. I never really had. But now when I go to read the Bible, he's there. And I experience him. It's not an academic exercise of learning about God. It is the experience of being with God and learning about him. Um, and, and so I, I just, Johnny asked me to share, and I, I wanted to share the power of God showing up in my room and speaking audibly to me um, changed everything. And what it did is it, it convinced me that when we talk about being in a relationship with God, we talk about experiencing God, and we talk about that the resurrection makes it possible 
to be in relationship with God, it is real and it is a possibility. And I would encourage you to seek after God and to learn about him and to try to seek um, who he is because in doing that, um, the blessings have just been unbelievable. So a work colleague asked me the other day how I was doing. I said the past three months have been the worst three months medically I've ever experienced, but they're the best three months I've ever experienced because of what God has shown me. So, you know, the, um, in Mark, the women go to the tomb, and they go trying to do a religious thing, to go anoint a dead body, to do the culturally acceptable thing on that particular Easter Sunday. But when they get there, the stone is rolled away, and the angel inside says to them, he's not here, he is risen. Come and see. Come and see the place where he was laid, and then go and find him where he's going to meet you. And that's my call to all of us off of what Brian just said. If you're not fully sure that he's alive, if you've never had the relationship that he's talking about, go and see. Come and see. Don't let this be a one-off religious cultural experience today. Seek and seek and seek Jesus, the God of the universe who wants to have a relationship with you. Let me pray for all of us. God, I thank you for the words that Brian shared, that in spite of bad upon bad medical news, you have met him with good upon good and your presence in his life. God, give us all that eternal perspective, that hunger and desire for the God who made us, the Father who loves us, the one who redeems us and wants a relationship with us. Open us to that amazing grace, the good news of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.
chassis I shall possess within the veil the life of joy and Then when we first began